Hi, my name is Fritzi Horstman and welcome to Compassion in Action. March is Brain Injury Awareness Month. And this month we're gonna have discussions from top neuroscientists. And today's guest is Dr. Kim Gorgans. This is her second time on Compassion in Action. And today she's really breaking down for the people in prison and for all of us, what traumatic brain injury is, what it does to the brain, and some clues on how we can start healing. Dr. Kim Gorgans is a professor of psychophysiology, clinical neuropsychology, and psychology of criminal behavior at the University of Denver. She manages a large portfolio of traumatic brain injury, TBI-related research, and has lectured extensively on those issues, including a 2010 TED Talk on youth sports concussion, a 2018 TED Talk on brain injuries and criminal justice, several NPR spots, and an interview on CNN with Anderson Cooper. Her work has been featured in US News, Newsweek, Salon, and more. Her research studies the reported injury history, cognitive function, and brain biomarkers of youth and college athletes, probationers, and inmates. Her mission is to better understand the short and long-term impacts of injuring our most vital organ. Dr. Kim Gorgans, welcome to Compassion in Action. Thank you so much for spending your time with us and teaching the men and women living in prison all about traumatic brain in injury and TB, or also known as TBI. Um, can you tell us what TBI is and what um, what happens to the brain when it's dam damaged like that? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me back. Fritzi, you're a force and I'm so proud to get to do anything that you asked me to do and to share your platform even just for a minute. Uh, traumatic brain injury is a blow to the head. It's also been revised in most states to include also blast injuries, which is a characteristic kind of injury that people may be exposed to overseas. Operation OEF, OIF, Iraq, Afghanistan, for example. The diagnostic criteria for a mild injury is that you have any alteration of consciousness. Most injuries are mild and most injuries that are mild will resolve fully. People start to get into trouble with more severe injuries. So let's say they have an injury with a loss of consciousness of more than 30 minutes or when they accumulate multiple brain injuries. So this might even be multiple mild brain injuries. We see that a lot in our clinical work in our research with women who are exposed to interpersonal violence, gang members who've been in a lot of fights, thinking of each one of those times they've broken a nose. Uh, for women, it also includes here specifically uh, being strangled. So we've added anoxia, which isn't a traumatic brain injury, but an acquired brain injury, but something that also can have a really negative effect on brain health. So once you know that you've had a brain injury, so you remember not being conscious for more yeah. than 30 minutes or dizzy for the next few days. So there are a lot of men and women, you said between 50 to 80% of the men and women living in prison have, right. have a TBI, a traumatic yep. brain injury. Yep. <laughs> we so see extraordinarily overrepresented in a population of folks who are incarcerated and in the community correction system. So the, there is a very high overrepresentation of brain injury history 
but also of the kinds of complications that come with brain injury history. So it's oftentimes not the brain injury that gets people into trouble, but it's the substance abuse and the mental illness. And these are physiological consequences of the injury itself oftentimes. Uh, of the exposure to childhood violence, of the exposure to violence as an adult. These are variables related to the brain injury history. So it becomes really hard to tease out any one problem. With the brain injury though, there's a way that we could think about treating these problems as promoting brain health and addressing the brain injury long-term, this isn't just in the short term, to improve symptoms across the board. So that's depression, sleeplessness, low libido, you name it, right? There's a way that promoting brain health fixes all of those things. So promoting brain health, what, what are some of the steps? What, what can we do to start promoting brain health, especially inside the prison walls where yeah. we don't have access to a lot of care? This is what's so tough. And I do this work clinically and the recommendations that I can give to clients who are in prison, those recommendations are largely different and the demands of the situation are different. So for example, one of the hallmarks of brain health, especially for injury recovery is sleep. In prison, you don't have any control over sleep or that the environment is quiet or when the lights are gonna be on and off. So. So you have to be really careful about controlling the things that you have control over. So sleep and diet or nutrition are kind of off the table, right? Folks who are in prison have very little control of those two things. To the degree that you do, those are two of the mainstays of brain health. But the other, perhaps the most important variable though, is physical movement. And I don't mean exercise. I like to say that in the animal model research, this is operationalized as heart rate, increased heart rate for 60 seconds at a time. So this produces a particular kind of hormone in the brain. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor or BDNF. And it's like miracle grow for the brain. So it is actually the metabolic component of brain health. And we only produce it during cardiovascular demand. So this might be deep knee bends. It might be right doing arm windmills for 60 seconds at a time. So there's a way that even in a cell, for example, we've got a lot of control over our brain's production of BDNF in particular. Wow. What great news. Yeah, that's a um, big one. And we overlook it. I say that as a psychologist, neuropsychologist, rehabilitation psychology, we go straight to stress and depression, but we leave physical movement on the table. There's a way that we should be thinking about physical movement and adapting it for all of these settings, especially for our peers who are incarcerated. They need this support and these kinds of tools more than anyone. So, okay, so let's say that we have 16 hours in the cell, let's mm -hmm. say. Um, what, how many times a day would you recommend they do some cardio work and what kind, what the, like you said, just some windmills or something? Yeah, yeah. It's 60 seconds at a time, whenever it comes to you. And there's really kind of, if you think of the two ends of a continuum. So on one end of the continuum is cardiovascular demand. So 60 seconds at a time of getting your heart rate up. So I don't mean, right, this is training or with weights. 
It's whatever it is in whatever the setting is. It's however you can get your heart rate up. On the other end of the continuum though, is getting your heart rate down. And there we might think of a whole suite of tools like mindfulness, meditative tools that sound a little bit hokey, but the research is really pretty incredible. When we think about uh, like truly just the EEG waves and being able to change the electrical conductivity of parts of your brain. And that's just a set of skills that we can all practice. And it's a way of attending to your breathing for 60 seconds at a time, or it's doing a body scan head to toe and really just thinking about uh, how does my head and neck feel right now? And am I clenching my jaw and moving from head to toe? These are really basic tools. This is the kind of, um, you know, basic skill building work that professionals forget. We've left this on the table and it takes neuroscience research to remind us of how powerful they are and why, frankly, we should all be using them. Right, well, meditation, it, it puts us into our prefrontal cortex, right? Sure, yep, into exactly. the place. Especially if you are seeing your thoughts go by as if on a marquee of a movie screen, right? And not, reacting to them and judging them. And there's a way that that kind of practice comes in really useful for managing uh, a hyperactive roommate, right? You've got a cellmate who's really impulsive and you're forever trying to deescalate their behavior. Those are really important tools to have too. Yes, and, and so we, when, we're, when we're in the prison environment, Sometimes people trigger us or maybe we didn't hear somebody or maybe yeah. like a, an officer will, will talk to us and we haven't heard them. Um, and they see it as defiance instead yeah. of uh, a brain problem. Right. How do we navigate some of those things so that we can communicate our, our own deficiencies without it being seen as a, you know, a moral failing? Yeah, this is so important. And Fritzi, you and I have talked a lot about this. The real crux of our research and our clinical work here statewide, I consult with a lot of states, the key of this work is to identify cognitive strengths and weaknesses and to use that information to A, give tools to this particular inmate to get themselves out of trouble and also to educate the system about how to respond more appropriately to this particular inmate. So we have a great set of tools. I think you're gonna make these available. It's a self-report inventory of different cognitive complaints. So memory complaints, processing speed, working memory, long-term memory. So all of the different areas of cognitive function What's really important though, is identifying places where, uh, hey, I'm not so good at this, I'm better at this thing. And then you've got a really tangible set of, we call them strategies, strategies and accommodations that you'll also make available that are about, here's what I need to do about it. I know now that my memory is terrible. So if I've got to remember something, I need to ask for a pencil and paper to write that down. And I've got to have a calendar to plan ahead to track important dates. And I know that if somebody tells me something one time, it's gonna fly right out of my mind. So I need to ask them to repeat it so that I can say it out loud. There's really basic tools that people can use to maximize, to lean on what we do well, to compensate for what we do less well. And 
people have told themselves stories about being stupid and they've been told by their teachers that they're worthless and they've been told by uh, the larger criminal justice system that they're like a, just a throwaway. And instead we've just not been responding correctly. We've not met their needs and started from there. Thank you for saying that because that's how I feel like the minute I walked into prison, that's how I felt. It's like, we yeah. just haven't seen them. We haven't seen right. that, that there right. are problems. Yeah. And, and this is, I, I just want to thank you. Is there any other advice uh, you can give to our dear friends in prison, how they can manage some of their moods and their uh, depression so that they can start thriving? Yep. So the first overall point I should have made, which is that the brain of an adult is remarkably plastic. Now the research suggests that the brains of adults are potentially more plastic than the brains of infants, which has always been the gold standard when you think of infinite potential. So there's something really unique, and this is true for every one of the brains of every one of your listeners and viewers. So there's a tremendous amount of plasticity available to you. The things that promote brain change are BDNF, so that's movement. It's using new circuits. So mindful meditation is another great way to promote better electrical activity in the brain. Here we might also be thinking about how to protect yourself from getting injured. So really solid de-escalation techniques. So how do you talk someone down so that you can avoid conflict and avoid getting hit or struck, right? To really prioritize keeping your brain healthy, especially if you have a history of injury to reduce the likelihood that you injure your brain again, right? That's gonna be the most key thing. And the kinds of demands for returning citizens I mean, no one could fulfill all of these requirements. So we need to arm you with every skill possible so that you can be successful as you tick every one of the boxes. Quick little sidebar for your female viewers, there's really unique demands for our women who are coming out of prison, right? Around parenting and caregiving. So uh, it's even harder in some cases for them to get a toehold and to track all of the competing demands. So using really basic tools, asking for what your needs are. I need you to repeat that to me. I need you to talk slower. I need you to make eye contact before you address me. Ask for what your needs are and take control of your own experience. Those are gonna be the really key components. You know, what's amazing is these are just simple human tools because when I have eye contact with somebody, I know they're talking to me. Yeah. When my husband yells at me from the other room, it disorients me and I'm kind of snap. Exactly. So these are just, and just, these are tools we can use. I can Universal. use them. Yeah. And, and that's it. That's our goal here with trauma talks is to get as many tools and healing modalities and compassionate discussions so we can start transforming the men and women living in prison. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kim, for your help. Fritzi, for thank your you for having me and for the extraordinarily important work that you're doing. I hope you enjoyed our discussion with Dr. Kim Gorgans. Uh, her, her insights and wisdom are invaluable and I'm doing everything I can to get this information to the men and women living in prison. We just created a TBI um, info page on our website and we're sending this info packet to prisons throughout the United States. Uh, as usual, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, 
um, share with your friends and go to our website, watch Step Inside the Circle, get involved, donate, and let's change the world. See you next time.